0: Screen Talk is now available on iTunes. You can head there to subscribe to the weekly show, and you could send us feedback on Twitter. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at A.K. Stanwick. Welcome to the latest edition of Screen Talk, IndieWire's podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Chief Film Critic and Senior Editor, and I'm joined by Thompson and Hollywood Ann Thompson, who apparently survived Comic-Con.
1: <laughs> I'm made of tough stuff, Eric. I can, I can take Comic-Con. I was when, a
0: little worried before. Last time we spoke, you were sitting on the floor. There was some guy in a bat suit lording over you, I think.
1: <laughs> Very true. But I literally left... You know, I, came, I went running off the podcast, apologies, to go into the to, to the room, Hall H, and, and I got to see that incredible interstellar presentation. So I was just very psyched. Once you get into that hall and you actually get your seat, and if you spend all your time in there and you don't try to do other things like interviews, it's so much fun just seeing all that footage. All that material is really fun to, to witness.
0: So as I recall, you, you said that you were dashing off to the Paramount panel. It was not dubbed the Interstellar panel, this sort of came out of left field. It was a secret.
1: It was a surprise. So we're, we're sort of slogging through, uh, you know, horrible stuff like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which it was so bad, you know. Steer clear, as if you didn't already know. I mean, just looking at the materials, you can tell that it. And then who they cast, you know, Megan Fox leaning out of the car window. With... And then there was another one. Uh, you know, th- th- that wasn't the point. The point was to surprise everybody and freak everybody out with uh, Interstellar.
0: Well, I will be fully enmeshed in the Locarno Film Festival when Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles screens for most media people next week, and I don't feel all that bad about it so uh it's it's interesting to hear you reflect on that because it's not the least bit surprising and yet of course it was at comic con you know like those are sort of the obvious ones interstellar is an interesting thing i mean i i know that that this is a science fiction film but my understanding is neither chris nolan nor matthew mcconaughey had ever been there i mean it's almost like a gray area whether or not this is a comic con kind of movie right
1: not at all there's no question at all that it i mean it totally is um they 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 were right to bring them there, and they both should have been there by now. And and Nolan is is you know was ha- looked at least like he was happy to to be there. It, it's you know he's heading into two thousand and one territory, and he paid due homage uh, to Stanley Kubrick. But he's also got a family story. The idea basically is that Matthew McConaughey has always yearned to be an astronaut. And and when the the call finally comes, which is all about you know saving the planet, you know it's like Armageddon or something. When the when the fall when the call comes, he he's he's going to be away for years. He's going to be away for a long time. He's going to miss his family who he really cares about. So is he going to save the world or is he going to you know and ditch his family or or stay home? So that's that's what the obviously he goes and and. Hathaway is in there with him, and judging from the success of, of gravity and whatever it is that Nolan is capable of pulling off in the way of this kind of space feature with emotions, I think, I think it looks fabulous.
0: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely looking forward to this movie. I guess what, what seems interesting to me is the contrast between something like this, which, which sounds like brainy science fiction, even if you don't necessarily like science fiction, And the other kind of stuff at Comic-Con, which is much more blatant in terms of, you know, appealing to a certain crowd. So what are your impressions now that you've seen these guys talk about it in this kind of forum about, you know, the kind of appeal for this movie? I mean, are there going to be a lot of different people who who get into it?
1: I'm going to put it right on the level with Gravity.
0: That's big. That's big.
1: Which is a, a huge, you know, Gravity wasn't a stupid movie. Gravity didn't pander. Gravity didn't cater to some kind of stupid demo. I think the greatest movies are the ones that somehow manage to be simple enough and ambitious enough to appeal to everyone without being stupid. And by the way, I want to say something about Comic-Con. I have this feeling, I would suggest to you, Eric, that you... Would feel right at home at Comic Con. The geeky, you know, the, the universe of of move, you know, Hall H is pretty much about the. It's either the smart TV demo, you know, happy and thrilled to see the whole cast of Game of Thrones talking about their favorite TV series, or you know, Walking Dead or whatever. Or or it, it's it's you know, people just thrilled. To see all the Marvel people up there, you know. It's in fact, I would say it's a smart demo. I wouldn't say it's a stupid demo. And
0: and to be clear, I did not use the word stupid. And and though it may have come across that way, I don't mean to be disparaging about this crowd in particular. In fact, I've grown up as an amateur cartoonist. I am a comic book geek at heart, and I've been to New York Comic Con, which I understand is kind of a microcosm of that thing. I, I relate to that tendency. What I, what I think is interesting, though, is that, you know, this was an event that was created with an actual indie sensibility for comic book people that's, you know, now used as a marketing mechanism for certain kinds of movies, irrespective of whether or not they, they speak to the kind of broader sensibilities of somebody who likes comics or the the kind of like marketing sort of boiled down notion of the comic book sensibilities.
1: This is what I'm trying to say, too. I see what you're saying. Well, You could have a Comic Con where Watchmen plays through the roof right. and then it goes out and doesn't do business. And you can have a Comic Con where Edgar Wright is absolutely beloved or Joss right. Whedon is beloved. Now, Joss Whedon made one movie, you know, um, F- Firefox, what was it called? Firefly. You know? Firefly. Firefly, thank you. Firefly which See, was... See, I know this
0: stuff. This is you do. I know you do. I, I know it. you do. But, so and then, and then the
1: other one, the other one, you know, the Edgar Wright one that didn't play, right. uh, you know, played very well at Comic-Con. but, but Scott um, Pilgrim. Which,
0: by the way, I love those comics. I read them years before we finished that movie. So I have my credentials here, and when I see Interstellar, I watched some of the video online of of the kind of rock star welcome those guys got. I was just thinking, well, is this a gamble where the studio is saying, we need these guys on board for this particular kind of movie? You know, I'm just trying to read behind the scenes a little bit. Well,
1: they're marketing the movie to the perfect demo, but this is a narrow demo compared to what they're going to want in the end. But this was right in the Comic-Con sweet spot, no question about
0: it. Well, I have to tell you, I know there was a huge new trailer that dropped this week. I have not watched it. I actually have a lot of respect for the element of surprise, as I know Nolan himself does. And I'm, I'm always speculative about the way that trailers impact expectations, as somebody who both writes critically about films and also reports on them, because you know you know that the only way to really look at this thing is when it's done. And so I'm, especially with a movie like this, which has these kinds of expectations, I'm wary about getting this trailer into my brain right now, although I Oh, don't worry
1: about it. It's very intro- introductory, this particular one. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do closer to release, but this doesn't give too much, this doesn't give too much away. So, one of the things that I hate about mo- movie marketing and the studios are, you know, totally guilty as charged in this, in this area is that unfortunately... Uh, usually closer to release, not at this stage, because this, this is this is coming out in November, but basically, the more they show in a trailer, the better it does, and that's unfortunately statistically true, and that's why they, they tend to give too much away. So I understand your your uh,
0: reluctance. One example of that, actually, is, is a movie opening this week, which is Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, I mean, to get away from the trailer issue, it does kind of spoil some stuff there, but well, what's interesting about that one is that it it is a, a Comic Con kind of a movie, but what I what I realized when I was watching it was that it's everything that's really interesting about it has nothing to do with the more comics element of it, the more like kind of spectacular elements. It's more just like how funny and, and kind of, you know, character driven some of the plot is. It's an interesting kind of dichotomy, almost like a schizophrenic movie. I don't know if you had that experience watching it, but that was my takeaway.
1: I have to say that I never had any exposure at all to the Guardians of the Galaxy um, universe. Um, and I don't think I've even... I don't, I don't think I even ever saw a trailer before I saw the film. I knew very little. I remember seeing the Guardians of the Galaxy introduction at, at Comic-Con a year ago. right? And, and I, I was like, I didn't know these characters. I didn't know who they were. So when I finally saw the movie... I have to say, I was just like thrilled and delighted. It was at the Arclight with the best sound and screen and, and you know, 3D and the whole nine yards. And ever, I, I had the same feeling about everyone in that room, that they were all having a just deliciously good time. And when they all came out of the theater and were talking with each other and saying, oh, I like this and I like that. It made me happy. It made me feel that feeling when you, A, know that something's going to be an enormous blockbuster that's going to play to the entire world and could actually beat Michael Bay's Transformers, and I'm rooting for it to Uh do so. That movie's going to do repeat business. I would rush back to see it a second time because I was in a world, it's like Avatar, a world where you want to be.
0: It is enjoyable. I mean, it's its interesting you talk about the Guardians, you know, not, not being familiar with them. They were kind of like marginalized in the comics for a long time, which is interesting because... It actually gave Marvel the liberty to do something that had less the onus of expectations outside of the more limited fan base, and that's one of the reasons why a filmmaker like James Gunn, who's made this, these interesting smaller movies, he's a former trauma guy. He did Slither, which was kind of a B movie, and uh, with
1: humor Super. though, he's got comedy chops. Yeah,
0: and Super, which was actually kind of a superhero satire, but it also had like a interesting realism to it. Um, and so you can see that kind of energy in the movie, and that's what works about it. What's less interesting to me is every time it kind of just turns into another battle. I mean, there aren't any action scenes that stand out in my mind the way that... You know, it's funny when this animated raccoon voiced by Bradley Cooper gets drunk in the bar and threatens to shoot the place up. You know, <laughs> I remember that scene, but it could be anyone. in the is, movie. The
1: thing is, is that he is... Um... I would compare. I would say that what's good about Marvel, and one of the reasons why this is a better movie than the studio version of it would be the Hollywood studio version, as opposed to the Marvel Marvel version, is is that it it, it actually was organically developed, uh, written by one of their um, uh, young writers in training. Who they have an internship program for for two years, and this this Nicole Perlman, I think her name is actually picked because she likes sci-fi she likes she wanted the cosmic comic she picked this comic and she worked on the script and honed down the characters and everything and then when it was looking really good and they recognized how good it was they brought in in other words she had the freedom to just make it what she wanted it to be for a long, long time, and then they brought in James Gunn, and he took it over and did his little number on it, put his magic on it. But that is so different, so 50 million times different from the way that anything like that would be done.
0: Plus, it that, also raises the question yeah. of, oh, hey, this is a superhero story that was sort of written by a woman, which doesn't happen too often. No,
1: and I would suggest to you that there are a lot of aspects of it that, that show that it was written by a woman. But... What, but what it's also like is, if you look at Joss Whedon and the Avengers, you recognize that what he understood was who each one of those characters was, and he gave them each a story, and it is finally character-based. All of them are. Right. Thor, Captain America, Iron Man, they are all character-based, and they know exactly what the tone is, what the universe is and and they never deviate from that and that's why this is so good so that you're it isn't about the action the action
0: isn't the most important thing it's not and yet it is there in a way that i think is is frustrating to me because of what the the kind of imbalance of quality now to bring up another example which i know you've seen in Luc besson's lucy right this is a ridiculous movie i call it (laughs) brainy dumb right it's brainy dumb because it, it it, it acts like a smart movie, but it, it doesn't make any sense, and yet it's so ridiculously entertaining for a lot of things that happen that are visual, I would right. posit. Right, and that's, that's what like, it's about. And that's much more exciting to me overall, I think. Really? Kind of... you,
1: would put, you would put Lucy... I would agree with a lot of what you just said about Lucy. What is exciting about it is that Scarlett Johansson has been very smart about her career choices. She's a smart girl, smart woman, and she... Uh, has not made too many mistakes and she, you know, under the skin was good to be, you know, being willing to be in a Marvel movie and get herself some action chops as Black Widow. Very smart. You know, she is now in the upper echelons and, you know, is a major star. She carried under the skin. That movie did as well as it did, however well that was. Because of her you know it would have done worse if someone else was in it. I think she is uh, the main reason to see the movie but it is it is deliriously fun at the same time that I do decry the mayhem around her Why would this incredibly brilliant person willingly you know destroy so King many evil. people.
0: But, you know, you can actually have a conversation about that. I mean, there might even be an answer to that if you dig deep enough into the material. Not to say it's necessarily there, but Slightly it opens up. doubt it. that. You know, I look, it's it's a stupid movie. I'm not, I'm not saying that per se. I'm saying that I'm more excited by something that, that is that kind of unruly and kind of go-for-broke extreme in terms of the way that it's experimenting with various possibilities. And something like Guardians, where the narrative is relatively pat- it has certain rhythms that I've seen a million times before, including that big giant thing in the sky falling down being the climax, you know. And, of course, the opening for sequels and all that stuff. It just so happens that it's better than a lot of those things. Now, I Well, think... it's
1: more fun to watch an origin myth than it is to watch a sequel. And so, there is that yeah,
0: as well. That, I, that I is totally that is the deal.
1: It. And so it's fun and exciting and and. And, and you don't know, you know, they're establishing the characters and you're learning about them at the same time that it's incredibly derivative and based on the DNA of movies like Star Wars. And you can just go through the whole thing and say, all you right know, that. Although I will argue that while Groot may appear to be a lot like Chewbacca, um, I will we, we talked about this before with Andy Circus and and uh, Planet of the Apes. Uh, and I really think that they should have a best character. Uh, best Animated Character Oscar category because Vin Diesel and Groot deserve uh, to win.
0: And wouldn't award. it be great to see Vin Diesel and Andy Serkis go head to head as their characters in award season? Caesar yes. versus Groot. The studios really need to be thinking about this. There's some major potential, or at least late night television. I mean, I just want to <laughs> see it happen. Well, let's turn to since since you're bringing up the award season, we we touched on this a, a little while back. But A Most Wanted Man, the last real leading role for um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, is doing really well. Um, and you published an interview with Howard Cohen from Roadside Attractions about uh, you know the possibility that maybe they could do some kind of awards campaign for this movie. It seems like maybe this is more of a reality now, because people are seeing this thing.
1: Well, part of it is a little bit of the Heath Ledger factor, I suspect. You know, there's a slight curiosity. But... What's really sad about it, as you pointed out in your in your review, is is that is that he gives one of his best performances. You know, he really elevates this movie. Yeah, he um,
0: deserves it. He could. He deserve really it deserves a it.
1: But I've also seen people respond. The movie has a, a slight. A, I like the movie a lot, and it's doing extremely well because it has all these great actors in it. And. And it is a a genre a thriller of a certain international kind. People know the genre; they enjoy this kind of movie, and the studios used to make it. That was Howard. Howard and I talked about how that realm of of production has moved uh, to the sort of indie financing overseas model uh, for movies like this. But it, it's a relatively commercial movie. But it, even though um, the, it depends on the
0: competition, and at the very least, I would hope that you know. The Gotham's and the Spirit Awards find a way to single out this this role because uh, it it definitely you know there's just no way that we're not going to get to the end of the year and not still have a reason to discuss this thing. I mean, well, the ten
1: best lists uh, the critics are going to have to see that this is one of the ten best films if if, if that's going to happen. Um, but I would also I would also say that the film is a little flat and um, and he is really really good, but I think some people are making a kind of Looking at, looking at what happened after he made the movie as a way of explaining what he's like in the movie, which I really dislike. I yeah, want to be able to up. say he is giving a performance. This is not the real Philip Seymour Hoffman or anything. Even though he's world-weary, even though he's tired, even though he's fighting against the establishment, well. uh, I think we shouldn't read too much into his performance in that regard.
0: So another thing that you talked about in in your Howard Cohen interview is VOD, and there were some questions about, you know, the prospects of various kinds of movies on VOD and and sort of how that marketplace compares with the theatrical one. And you talked a little bit about Snowpiercer, which this week apparently has made around $4 million on VOD, according to the numbers that Radius is putting out there. So this has gone from a story that was more speculative to one that really does have hard data, but it still feels kind of like the this, this sort of thing that everybody's looking at and, and sort of uncertain what to do about, you know, like we're not necessarily going to see more Snowpiercer releases, right?
1: That was, an, that was a, an unusual situation where Harvey Weinstein was willing to let go of the potential for a certain kind of theatrical upside to, in order to perform this experiment. And he obviously thought it was very risky to put $25 million into a 2,500 screen uh, release. Now, if he had, maybe it would have come out. But in any case, um, what it shows is what you can do with a commercial movie on VOD. And what Howard was talking about is that there are certain movies with good cast, mostly. It's just safer to go on, on VOD than, than, you know, if they're not you have, to, you have to, these days you have to have serious confidence to go out theatrically, which he did with A Most Wanted Man, right. and because um, he had enough casts, and he had enough commercial elements, and he was right. He was perfectly right. But the question is, I think, the what we talk about is, the theaters demand a three-month window, a 90-day window, uh, for between, you know, the first-run theaters, the big theaters, the big theater chains, the best theaters, and if you want to go on VOD, what happened with Snowpiercer was that it had to settle for less, you know, not the top-rung theaters. And, and so its theatrical upside was cut short by the short window between theatrical, and it was just two weeks right. between theatrical and VOD. So it's, I the real question, what if you paid and expended money to brand a commercial movie for six weeks and went on VOD? That is, and if, if the theaters know you're going to do it, they won't let you book their theaters. That's the, the deal, you know, so you can't lie to them.
0: Well, and what, have, I, what I'm sensing is that there is this increasing shift towards the idea that the people willing to experiment with the windows are the good guys. And the bad guys in this conversation are the ones who are just afraid or, or unwilling to try anything different. I IST... well, no, there's a
1: way of defending the theater point of view because it's the only way they have aside from concessions but that still requires that people show up at the theater. That's the only way they make money. They have no other options The studios yeah. can do whatever they want even the even the studios but they're looking at the Indies to do all of their sort of experiments. Well,
0: I'm completely sympathetic to the theaters myself, and I did a piece where I got reactions from a lot of different ones, and clearly there's reason for them to be skeptical or resistant because of their own uh, business model. Uh, But I think what's interesting is you look at how, for example, this week it was announced that Ted Sarandos of Netflix is going to get a special Gotham Award from IFP this year. That, to me, is a statement of, you know, this person who is in the – purely in the digital space who's pushing on the windows question you know that's that's the kind of thing that we want to celebrate and that suggests to me that with that sort of thing happening with the snowpiercer thing that there is a shift in the indie landscape to the idea of experimenting with windows more and more
1: this is not news eric they've been doing this for a long time it's not I a mean, question of ifc not and magnolia and and the indies are the ones at Gotham. Gotham is an indie. Sure. Indies celebrate.
0: It's, it's, they celebrate. Not, it's not news to do that per se, but it does seem like there's more conversation now about it in a, in a more, pub, more public setting, whereas before it was it was kind of an insular dialogue. And the fact that it's more public could also have an impact on the way that filmmakers perceive these things, the way that kind of general moviegoers eventually perceive these things. And
1: There's another way of looking at it, which is that Netflix at this stage of the game, you know, very much in the digital streaming space, they made that switch um, a while ago, um, is picking up more um, content, more, more indie content. They're doing docs. And, you know, not only did they do... Uh, the Oscar-nominated *The Square* and, and *Mitt*, um, but they picked up from Sundance *The E Team*, and they picked up uh, *Varunga*,
0: which is um, great. I love that I can't documentary. To see.
1: I loved *E Team*. I saw that, and I also love this movie called um, *Mission Blue*, which they picked up, which I saw, and and it, it's this is a this is very uh, much a question of, of competing directly with other distributors for. This, you know, putting things out theatrically and then putting them out on Netflix. Um, So I think it's wonderful uh, that they're doing that. But it's also a question of how the industry is shifting in such a way that even on the indie side, a lot of the filmmakers and talent that would ordinarily be working their way up through the indies in terms of having careers are heading for television. They're working on House of Cards. They're working on Orange is the New Black. They're working on uh, other things other than indie films.
0: And it's interesting because I, I actually just finished binge-watching Fargo this week uh, on through my Amazon account, and uh, it's great. It's a fully contained story. It's not the original Fargo, but it did make me wonder hey, nowadays, if the Coen brothers had come up with the idea of Fargo, this might have been what it looked like. So you really can see that contrast in a very explicit way with today's content. Um, there
1: are certain filmmakers like Paul Thomas Anderson and the Coens and Wes Anderson and... and, and uh you know others who can who can inhabit that space where they can do you know whatever they want. In a to, they can command you know enough money coin and coin and distribution largesse to do what they want. But for the most part now, most of these indie filmmakers are heading for TV.
0: But let's get away from that because we want to recommend some movies that are opening this week, and there actually are some people should check out. Do you want to uh, share your recommendation first?
1: I love Calvary. And um, I think I, I may have talked about it a little bit out of out of Carlo Ivari, but Brendan uh, Gleason plays uh, a Catholic priest who is hit uh, you know sideways, gobsmacked in the confessional when uh, one of his um, congregation tells him that he's planning to kill him in a week. <laughs> <laughs> he's basically going to get back at him as a representative of the Catholic Church because of some abuse that he has suffered for many years as an altar boy. And I don't mean to make this sound funny. There is a lot that is funny in the movie. And the movie has a kind of over-the-top, stylized sort of quality about it, um, which some people will like and some people won't, um, actually. Uh, This isn't going to be a movie that is embraced by everyone. And I suspect that how you feel about religion may have some impact on how you react to the movie. I thought it was brilliant.
0: I have to say, I mean, I I liked it quite a bit as well, and I also liked John Michael McDonough's previous movie, which was also with Brendan Gleeson called The Guard, a very different kind of uh, dark comedy of sorts. Uh, But even people who aren't turned on by this thing I think will be impressed with, with Brendan Gleeson's performance. It's maybe his best role. I mean, it's really remarkable what he does with this very sophisticated character. A lot of it's internalized and kind of registers on his face. I have to say, though, my recommendation for this week, completely more to the extreme of it's not for everybody, okay? Like, the movie you're picking is about a priest kind of dealing with the possible end of his life. The movie I'm picking is about a necrophiliac. So that would be <laughs> Child of God. It's, it's uh, directed by James Franco, adapted from the uh, Cormac McCarthy novel from the early 70s. Uh, and it stars this guy, Scott Hayes, in really his first uh, big movie role as this character who's sort of based on Ed Gynes, the serial killer, but sort of an amalgam of different kinds of people who loses his home, ends up kind of living in the woods as this apparent crazy person who kills and rapes women, among other things. Uh, But what the movie does, I think, in a surprisingly sophisticated way is that it, it dares you to go with the experience of watching this person and if not sympathize with his psychosis, then come to understand it. And Franco, I find to be actually developing a very interesting strain of, of, uh, of, of uh, sensibilities. As a filmmaker, That's not necessarily there as a performance that reflects what he's been doing in academia, which is unwrapping certain constructs, certain things that restrict you from appreciating or accessing a movie in a certain way by confronting things in a very particular fashion. And this movie, I think, Does it better and more coherently than anything he's done before? Partly because Scott Hayes is so good, it's it's a really uh, fascinating tour de force performance, but also because the film is strung together quite beautifully in this very macabre fashion, so that you're swept up in the kind of odyssey of this strange man lost in the woods. It's almost abstract, and so Franco maybe the conversation has shifted a little bit. I I, I think he's gotten a bad rap for being this freewheeling experimenter who tries all these different media. This is the first movie that he has made that I think really totally works. And so if you were to start somewhere with his filmography, I realize a lot of people haven't explored it that much, I would say this is the time to start paying attention. As his career continues to develop, I think as a filmmaker, he is continually going to be a source of uh, intrigue. And so... There is something worth seeing here, and I hope that people can get over that hump with him because he is actually a really interesting figure. He's in the interview, that really uh, bizarre comedy that's pissed off North Korea with Seth Rogen. I can't um, wait to see that. it I'm, looks I'm great. Really, that's
1: Rogen and, and Goldberg. Uh, my question for you on Franco, the director, I've seen some of his shorts. What are, how many films has he actually directed at this point?
0: You know, I, I can call that up very easily with IMDb, but I, what I can tell you is that there, there's been more than I think a lot of people realize. I mean, he's been making movies for, I guess, more than a decade. I mean, I'm, I'm actually in front of a computer now and I'm looking, but yeah, I mean, his, his first feature that he directed was The Ape in 2005, which was not very good. Uh, But he's done a lot of stuff since then, including a a really interesting black-and-white documentary called Saturday Night about behind-the-scenes of Saturday Night Live, which was in distribution limbo for a while but might be coming out on Hulu. Uh, He did a a biopic of Sal Mineo, which was interesting. It didn't totally work. Uh, Interior Leather Bar he co-directed, which is a kind of fascinating look at sexual identity. And then last year at Cannes, he had uh, this Faulkner adaptation, As I Lay Dying, which was told in this very elaborate split-screen fashion that didn't all work, but was, I think, daring in a sense because it actually forced you to engage with the way Faulkner tells stories as opposed to just trying to tell the original story. Um, so you can go do your own research and figure out like exactly how many things this guy's put out there. There's a lot of it, and it doesn't all work, but there is sophisticated artistry there, and to me that's what's really valuable is, is that... You know, you can't just write off somebody who's trying to do something different if you look at the particulars and there is something there. That's my personal plea, but, you know, that being said, if he makes a real stinker next time, I wouldn't necessarily be surprised. And, and, uh... The the sound and the fury, which is his next uh, Faulkner adaptation, will be on the fall season circuit. So I will definitely bite my tongue if there is reason to be hesitant about about this guy. I'm just saying I'm just going to put it out there. There might be something more than than what people have uh, perceived so far. Well,
1: one of the things about him as an actor, which is sort of interesting to me, is that he's better as a naturalistic actor who truly inhabits a character then he is, and he's a very good actor, just think about Milk, You know some of the roles that he's played that are really good, as opposed to being a movie star, like the way he was in Oz. I did not care for, for the kind of performance he gave there. I don't think he's the kind of guy who's looking to be liked so much as he is to really dig into a role that interests him, and I'm sure that applies to his films as well.
0: All right, well, we've covered a lot of ground here this week. Next week, I'll be in the Locarno Film Festival, and I'll have a lot to talk about there, and, and hopefully I'll be coherent at certain points in time. Just a reminder to people that we are on iTunes, and uh, we'd love to hear what you think, so feel free to uh, review the show on there or find us on Twitter and, and give us your thoughts. We can take it. So uh, with that in mind, Anne, it's always a pleasure.
1: Always a pleasure, Eric.